Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, my colleague Margaret Harris meets the Chief Technology Officer of the Finnish company Polar Night Energy, which has developed a technology that stores renewable energy in sand so it can be used when the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing. And after that interview, I'll be chatting with Margaret about an article that she's written for Physics World. The article looks at how installing a heat pump and solar panels can cut your carbon footprint and maybe even save you money. I'm speaking with Marko Lunen, who's the chief technology officer of a Finland-based company called Polar Night Energy. Hi, Marku. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah. Hello, Margaret. Nice to speak to you. So my understanding is that your company makes sand batteries. Perhaps you could begin to, by explaining to our listeners what a sand battery is, because this is not really this kind of batteries you put in your laptop or your electric car, right? Yeah. Yeah. I guess like uh, what people generally think of as a battery is something that provides electricity, but actually... What we have uh, is a high temperature heat storage, uh, which uses sand as the storage medium. So it's uh, sand heated with, up with electricity uh, and the energy is stored in the form of heat. And how much sand are we talking about here? Yeah, the Kankampa storage, which is, which is our first commercial installation, that's about 100 tons of sand. Okay, and that's put in a, a sort of silo, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it's like a steel silo, quite a typical one. Okay. And how does it actually work? Yeah. So um, our aim is to to enable the growth of of uh, like fluctuating clean energy sources such as solar and wind. So we we actually have a um, like high power resistive heating elements that are used to heat air to like 600 or 700 degrees Celsius, which is passed through the through the heat storage, through the sand uh, uh, in, a, in a piping system that's basically a large heat exchanger. Uh, the the air loses its heat heat there and therefore charges the storage, and uh, then it returns to the same closed loop uh, to go for another round, and discharging the storage. Um, we use the same loop, uh, but we feed cold air into the storage, get hot air out, and that hot air can be fed to, well, quite a wide range of different types of heat exchangers. In the Kankampa case, it's, a, it's an air-water heat exchanger. Okay. And you know, why use sand? I mean, because uh, solar energy systems, wind energy systems do tend to have, you're, you're, they certainly can have battery uh, packs associated with them to store the energy when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. Yeah, uh, well, like uh, lithium-ion batteries and then like uh, these electricity uh, storing batteries or chemical batteries, they uh, they can be efficient in in like fine-tuning the the output of these these systems. But we're really talking of large volumes of energy, so. Uh, if we were if we're talking about storing gigawatt hours of of energy, uh, that's already that would be enormous in terms of, of uh, like how much lithium ion batteries can be deployed. So the the uh, main point here really is the scale. If we want to uh, 
um, store huge quantities of energy. We uh, like heat is a an efficient way to to even be able to do it. And I guess there must be advantages in terms of cost as well, because sand is well. I mean, lithium is fairly cheap, but making lithium batteries is is expensive. So yeah, the the price per capacity for this kind of a sand battery is in the order of thousand times cheaper than than lithium ion batteries. And do you have to use a particular type of sand? Um, well, one of the like uh, main advantages of our design is that we're not at all sensitive to the type of sand. So actually, we have a like a, already a small catalog of different possible materials. So like sand-like materials is a good word for that. So can be industrial residues, and it can be sand that's not useful for construction industry. So um, well. Anything solid that doesn't melt, uh, like in our temperature range, and uh, of course the the thermal thermal parameters, so density, uh, thermal capacity, thermal conductivity, they are also important. But as long as they are in the good range for us, we can work with most uh, many different materials. And you said you you put this technology to test in the you've actually installed one of these silos full of sand in a town in Finland. Uh, Konkanpa. What's it doing at the moment in terms of providing power? What are its capabilities? Yeah, so um, this one that's installed in Konkanpa, we're using it to to like boost uh, waste heat from from water-cooled data servers uh, up to a level that's suitable to be fed into a district heating network. So we are charging the sand storage with electricity and we're discharging the the storage as uh, in the form of heat. And is is Konkanpa's electricity generally generated by solar and wind, or does it generally come from a mixture of sources? Um, comes from mixed sources. So, well, they have like a CHP power plant there, and they have a small small hydropower asset there, and they are also uh, the the power utility company. They they own assets in in uh, wind farms around Finland. So. Well, but anyway, everything comes through the grid, so it's a mixed mixed source. And what are the advantages of using district heating? Is is that really common in, in Finland, even even in quite small towns like Konkanpa? Yeah, yeah, I think like I don't remember the exact figures, but I think it's more than safe to say that more than half of the homes are in Finland are heated by district heating. It might be even a bigger figure, so it's a really common common technology here. And did you run into any sort of local opposition with installing the silo there? Um, I had a quick, quick look at Wikipedia for Kankanpa, and it says that the, it's not a particularly stronghold of the the Green League in Finland. It's it's more of a right wing sort of party. Yeah, well, um, like the as as this first commercial project was a relatively small one, and it's installed on the on on this CHP power plants power plant site. So it was quite like a straightforward process. It was the like decision made by the, the power plant company alone since it's part of their production portfolio. So, well, and, and generally speaking, I think like uh, people are open to these kind of suggest, uh, different kind of solutions. And, and actually the, 
the power company there has been quite active in, in finding ways to produce heat without uh, combustion technologies. So partnering with the power company itself rather than trying to get some sort of local groundswell of support was, was really key for you? Yeah, yeah, like for this first installation, that was a simple way forward. And, and as, as the power companies are usually the ones that are providing the heat, it's, well, it's like crucial to discuss with them first since it's like a centralized heating system. They are providing heat and the, and the customers are buying the heat. Yeah, so they don't really necessarily care where the heat comes from as long as it's relatively inexpensive, which I guess, you know, it does, with the price of gas obviously increasing quite dramatically with the, the war in Ukraine, which is obviously very important to, to Finland because you're right next to Russia. Um, do you see a, a change in attitudes toward this type of solution? Um, yeah, especially, well, gas hasn't been so important in Finland in terms of heating homes, but but I think, like generally speaking, the the attitude towards more local production and, and not sourcing uh, fossil fuels from Russia—that's something that most people see as 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 the way forward. Um, on the like our other, well, we are like our two main main potential clients are district heating networks and also like industrial process industry and heavy industry, and they have been relying a bit more on gas. So on that side the interest has grown a lot the last six months. Tell me a bit more about how um, this sort of system would be used for industrial process heating. How would that work? How would it be, how would it be different from the installation that you've already done? Yeah, so the the Vatajankoski storage, it provides hot water to the district heating network. So it's between 75 and 110 degrees Celsius, what we're providing for them. And uh, well, as we are building high temperature uh, heat storages. So we go up to 600 degrees Celsius. We are actually quite, uh, it's like an easy job for us to provide 100 degrees Celsius water. So we can provide higher temperatures also. So industrial processes, there's, well, along almost all fields, there are processes that require 200 degrees Celsius or 300 degrees Celsius inputs and uh, we can provide those also. So we can pro produce, for example, uh, like pressurized steam for industrial processes, or then we can provide also like directly hot hot air to to some of the, or, or also like through, through heat exchangers to, to any kind of uh, hot, uh, or like any, any kind of hot process engineering application. Okay. Um... On your website, you mentioned something that really interests me, which is that renewable energy is generally used to produce electricity. Um, but electricity is really only a small piece of the pie when it comes to energy use and even domestic energy use. And we talked about industrial process heat being an important consumer of energy generally. But um, even if you look just at domestically, it's actually heating in hot water that counts for 82% of the energy related emissions from homes in Finland, whereas electricity is just 18%. Um, you and your company obviously see your sand batteries as a way of using intermittent renewable energy to generate heat as well as electricity. But is there is there going to be enough renewable energy in place to make that possible on a large scale? Yeah. Um, so, well, I think like a good example has been today and yesterday. Uh, we've had super low electricity prices, even though like this year has been totally different than others. 
but uh, the the electricity price in the in the electricity market has been less than 10 euros per megawatt hour which accounts to one cent per kilowatt hour uh like 23 hours or 24 hours today and yesterday both um and also the as well as it's really dr driven by wind power this uh these low prices the the electricity related emissions have been less than 30 grams of co2 equivalent so this is much lower than than well if we're talking about the combustion-based heating, which is really the most important CO2 producer in Finland and well in industries generally, uh, they they produce about around 300 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour. So we have uh, sometimes when it's well when it's windy or if we have significant amounts of solar power when it's sunny. Um, we might have uh, lots of excess electricity available that's from clean sources. So as a as a clean primary energy source, um, we don't any we don't have any other options than uh, than wind at the moment. I mean, well, some sources of biomass might be but might be at the same range, but those are quite marginal in the big picture, in my opinion. Okay, so so the idea is you you uh, you store up energy while it's while it's cheap, and therefore you can build more renewable energy because it's it's viable to do so. Yeah, so um, well, I see this kind of a storage solution uh, as a means to support the growth of of wind power and and solar power. So these these intermittent sources. Um, if there's nowhere to to store the energy when this uh, when the production is at its peak, uh, it starts to make sense to to slow down the construction of these technologies. So there has to be somewhere to to put the energy in. Uh, so if well, for example, here it's about ten percent of the electricity produced by wind power now, and already it leads to situations where we have sometimes super cheap and low emission electricity available, and uh, well. It's quite uh, difficult to imagine what what it would be like if it would be the opposite that it's ten percent other and ninety percent wind. Uh, the the well, well, the electric grid wouldn't survive that without significant amount of storages. So I think like this is a one way to have a large sink of uh, for for this excess electricity and to maintain that energy in some kind of a useful form. How long can you store heat in one of these these silos, these sand batteries? Well, uh, if we're talking of of larger scale ones, so the Kankampa storage or the Vatajankoski storage, it's about ten megawatt hours in capacity. So that's at that scale, um, we could store for maybe a month or two, but it doesn't make that much economical sense. We want want to use it faster. But if we go to large scale to one gigawatt hour or larger storages, it would be possible to to store the heat with with like reasonable efficiency for for even for months. But also there, well, as with any battery or in the end with any storage, you want to cycle what's inside as much as possible for the system to make economical sense. So we seek typically for to to store the heat for one or two weeks or three weeks. So longer than that, the 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 uh, throughput of energy per year 
remains too low to justify the investment. What would you say was like the biggest technological challenge in developing your sand battery system? Yeah, so um, technology-wise, uh, technology the um, we have aimed to to build the storage as simple as possible. So um, first, we start started with simulations and, and comparison of simulation and real time data with our uh, or like real life data from our pilot plant. Um, so the simulation part. Uh, Took, took some years for us to develop into a level that we, we have confidence in it. But in the end, uh, the, the um, construction of the storage is quite straightforward. It comes more to the uh, finding the ways to make build it cheap enough because it is a large, like a bulk storage. The investment price cannot be too high since, uh, well, in the end, the equation goes so that the, the electricity we put in the price of that plus the price of investment of the storage per year has to be lower than the value of heat that it provides in the end. So we need to keep the investment as low as possible and uh, well, building a, a reliable and uh, efficient storage uh, while minimizing material use and, and labor costs. That's the, the most challenging part. And finally, what's next for Polar Night Energy? Are you got other pilot projects in scale, other commercial projects? Um, we are uh, aiming to scale up our commercial projects. So the Kankampa storage is about 10 megawatt hours in capacity. Uh, we've uh, quoted some storages with 100 megawatt hours of storage, so 10 times larger. That starts to be already quite quite good in it. Uh, in some like industrial cases, the smaller one also works in some specific cases. But generally speaking, we want to go to one gigawatt hour capacity or more, uh, so as to justify the storage to be connected to a really high power electricity line, and to provide a significant uh, use case in in like large industry or or district heating networks. Yeah, and uh, what we would want to do is to start building a one gigawatt hour storage already next year. And if you look further into the future, I mean, it's often said that the solution to um, removing fossil fuels and having more green energy is, is lots of different things. It's not like there's one single solution to the problem. Where do you see um, sand batteries fitting in with the, the larger ecosystem in, in an ideal world where much more of the, of humanity's power needs were, were drawn from renewable energy. Yeah, I think like, uh, well, talking about energy systems society-wide, uh, it's, well, it's not very productive to think that one technology would alone be enough. I think like uh, our solution is a good, uh, you'd like option to take in the large volume fluctuations of, of wind and solar. And what I would want to see is, well, um, these kind of storage solutions increase flexibility when we have uh, more and more wind and solar available. But what I think will also be important is uh, increasing transfer line capacity over borders and then also increasing flexibility in the, in the demand side. So industries and homes should also somehow be included in the, the flexibility of, of 
both electricity and heating networks and also um, well energy savings is a good good way to also move forward since well uh, it's always better to save energy rather than build more production and all this infrastructure around it yeah. Marco Leonen, thank you very much yeah, thank you Margaret Now I'm joined by Margaret Harris to talk about a feature article that she's written about how UK households can reduce their carbon footprints. Hi, Margaret. Hey, Hamish. Now, Margaret, you, t you took a very personal approach to this article, and you've written about what you've done to reduce your carbon footprint. Can you tell us about some of the recent modifications that you've made to your house in southwest England? Uh, yeah, so briefly, I had um, we had a, a heat pump, um, so a replacement heating system installed uh, earlier this year, and also some solar panels. And I should say that whilst they've reduced my house's carbon footprint, I wouldn't say, and obviously they reduced mine as well by ex by extension. There's whole lots of other areas that, that are still, um, you know. I'm still using carbon. I'm not trying to sort of put myself across as some sort of eco-saint here. Uh, I really wrote about my experience as um, just an, an ordinary citizen who wants to do a bit better in terms of how much energy my house is using and where that energy comes from. And and I think most people would be familiar with um, solar panels on a roof, but um, a heat pump, that, that does that look a bit like a sort of an air conditioning unit that, that some people might have outside their house, you know, particularly in North America, a sort of a central air conditioning system? Yeah, it looks very much like a central air, con air conditioning system, and it actually works on the same principles as a refrigerator. So while it's unfamiliar technology in one sense, um, it's not in another sense. Um, the particular type of heat pump I have is... Uh, it's an air source heat pump, so there are also ground source heat pumps where they you know, they have to come out and dig a gigantic hole in your garden. Well, maybe not not gigantic. I shouldn't shouldn't exaggerate, but a big hole in your garden to put pipes uh, down really far under the surface. So that was out. We don't have a, a big garden where we can have lots of surface area to get heat from the ground. So we we got an air source heat pump, and then because uh, my house, like uh, a lot of houses in the UK, and also in the northeastern part of the U.S., uh, is run heated by radiators, so water, hot, hot water circulation. Uh, the air source heat pump we got connects up to the, the radiators, and so it heats the water that goes around the radiators. We didn't refit the house with uh, duct work to, to pump um, hot air around the house, which we, in theory, could have done, but you know we, it would have cost a lot more money and been a lot more hassle, so we stuck with radiators, which was uh, a little bit annoying this past summer because if you have an, an air source heat pump that pumps air, uh, then you can run it in reverse and have an air conditioner just like mm. that. So, which, you know, would have been nice in the heat waves this past summer. And, and but, with the radiators, did, did, you have to, did you have to get bigger radiators? Did you have to get rid of all your old radiators on your, on your gas powered system and replace them with bigger ones? Or c could you use the existing radiators? We did have to get rid of all, all our existing radiators, all, all but one, I think. Um, and that's because uh, when you have a heat pump, the heat pump is vastly more efficient if the water that it's circulating around your radiators is not that hot. 
um, you know, sort of 45 degrees, 50 degrees, no more than that is if you want to have the most efficient operation. Whereas a traditional boiler, I mean, you can you can heat the water to however, however, however high you want it to be, you know, 60 degrees, 70 degrees, much more normal. So to compensate for that, if you have a heat pump, you need to have larger area of, of radiators to radiate that heat and keep the room sufficiently warm. Um, that said, they don't look ridiculous. They're, they're mostly just sort of double wide as they used to be. They stick out a little bit further from the wall. It's not a, a huge difference, I would say. So, so a bit of disruption inside and, and you had to have equipment installed on the outside of your house as well. Was it worth it? Did the heat pump reduce the amount of energy that you used to heat your house? It reduced it by actually a really surprising amount. I hadn't, um, and this is a disgrace for a physicist to admit possibly, but I hadn't run the numbers before uh, getting the installation done. I knew it would be significant. I didn't necessarily know how significant, but it's reduced the the total amount of energy that the house uses by about half. Wow. Um, which is, is, yeah, it's really significant. And for a, week's, a week of disruption, um, well, about 10 days, I guess, actually. It wasn't fun to not have any central heating in the middle of January, but, you know, after that, that initial pain was over, it, it's been fantastic. But uh, unfortunately, because of the way that energy is priced in the UK, um, I, I don't think that reduced your heating cost, did it? Or, 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 or was there a reduction? I think there has been a reduction, but it's certainly not like, uh, you know, a 50% cut um, because the prices of, of gas in the UK is a lot cheaper than the price of electricity. Um, there's been a lot of political turmoil about the exact prices, so I, I don't have the numbers to hand, but it's something like one third more expensive um, now than it was uh, sort of a year ago. Uh, that's both gas and electricity and, and gas is um, quite a bit less expensive than electricity as well. So yeah, we're, we're using half the electricity, half the energy we used to be using, but all the, all the energy we're using comes in this more expensive form, which is electricity. Right. Okay. But I, I suppose in the long run, um, uh, at some point, um, when, when, you know, let's say when most electricity is green and, uh, and gas is, is no longer available, possible, possibly, then th this is a, you know, a, a viable and economical way of heating, or at, le at least it will be. Well, I think the correct view is it ought to be, um, because, you know, the reason more people don't do what I do is that a lot of people, in fact, I would dare to say most people in the UK don't have a spare several thousand pounds just lying around to change their heating system. Mm -hmm. And even if you get to the point where, you know, you need a new boiler, uh, typically when you need a new boiler, you need it right away. Uh, you know, it, it cuts out always at the least, in, least convenient moment. And at the moment, um, because heat pump technology is relatively new in the UK, it isn't actually in some countries in Europe, it's much more common. Um, there aren't uh, an enormous number of suppliers who are in mm. installers who are able to provide that. So, um, you know, I think that there's a lot that needs to happen politically and policy wise before it becomes easier for more people to, to make this choice. You know, I'm not... Uh, <laughs> I'm not one of the the one percent, but I'm also you know not not badly off either. So it's kind of it's a very personal economic decision that relates to your your personal circumstances. And 
not everybody's going to be able to do it with the current situation, the current policies in place. And what about the solar panels, Margaret? Now, England is at a fairly high latitude and, uh, and the sun is often obscured by clouds. Do, do they make a difference um, in sort of a northern European situation? They do. And, and you know, both rooftop solar, I mean, uh, so between, I think it was roughly late April and certainly the end of August, early September, uh, the solar panels were actually generating more electricity than the house was using. Now, that's mostly with the heat pump not turned on, so that's the biggest user of electricity. But, you know, in the summer, you don't need a heat pump. You have heat waves. So uh, it was it certainly made a lot of difference a lot of the year, and that is, as you say, even in uh, cloudy southwest England and in northern Europe where the, the sunlight isn't as strong as it is in some parts of the world. Um, but then, of course, you know, I, I'm, that's just talking about uh, a, a rooftop. If you have a whole field full of solar panels, you can generate you know, much more uh, useful amounts of, of solar energy than you can just on the roof of your house or indeed on roofs of uh, sort of commercial buildings, warehouses, that type of thing, which is why, you know, a lot of companies, I think a lot of uh, actually farmers who, who use a lot of electricity uh, as well, are, are starting to get interested in this type of thing. Uh, larger scale installations, just one one step up from your average household installation. Mm, yeah, well, you, you certainly see um, fields of, of solar panels um, in England. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, I, I suppose it, it 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 sounds like it is it is very viable. Now, now you mentioned in your article that um, that in the summer you're generating more energy than you can use. Is that is that energy just wasted or do you have to switch the solar panels off so they don't <laughs> produce all this energy? I mean, you can't sell it back to the grid, can you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's we're we are, we're definitely selling it back to the grid and we're ah, being okay, paid. Right. A, um, a modest amount of money, uh, less than the cost that we buy from the grid, of course, because this is the way economies of scale work. Um, but yeah, we're definitely selling it back to the grid. Uh, none of it's getting getting wasted. Um, you know that that's it's a, definitely a, a part of what makes solar panels a, a viable feature for for people to put on their homes. Okay, and and would it would it be better for you to to not sell it back to the grid and and have your own battery? Um, and store it, um, you know, save it up yourself and not have that, that back and forth? Would that, would that be a more, uh, would that be better financially or, or does the cost of a battery just uh, p put that out of touch? Well, in our case, you know, we'd already dropped however many thousand pounds on a heat pump and solar panels. So we didn't actually have enough spare cash to put in batteries as well. Um, and so that's, that's a barrier, uh, absolutely. Uh, the other thing is space. Uh, our house isn't enormous, so we didn't really have that much space for batteries. Uh, better technology is a less mature technology than solar panels, but it is improving every day. I mean, you and I at Physics World, we write new articles about battery advances in almost every week. So it's um, at the moment, the balance just wasn't there for me, but I think it is going to become increasingly likely that solar installations are going to come with batteries. Of course, some will already do. It just adds to the expense and the space. But uh, I think it is definitely going to become more of a viable proposition in the future. And, and earlier you mentioned uh, a few of the sort of economic and I suppose supply issues that might um, prevent Britons from switching to heat pumps and installing solar panels. What, um, I mean, what can, can governments do to, to, to encourage people to, to switch? 
Well, I think yes, yes, it's, it would be nice if the government couldn't could make it easier to uh, switch to heat pumps and install solar panels. But the biggest issue really is cost, and uh, alongside that, one of the cheapest way actually to reduce your household's energy consumption is to insulate your house better. And if you're looking for low-hanging fruit, you know, paying for insulation, we're talking hundreds of pounds. Uh, paying that's for loft insulation. Uh, paying for more complex forms of insulation, like exterior cladding to homes that that can't have ca- cavity wall insulation. Yes, that's more expensive, but you know, to really uh, improve energy efficiency and reduce the amount of energy we're using, especially using in terms of fossil fuels. Uh, which has negative carbon consequences and negative geopolitical consequences, as well as just you're just hitting you in the pocketbook. To do that, you really the lowest hanging fruit is to insulate your house better, um, mm. and you know that I think is is really where it's at in the near term. Longer term, um, I think yeah, the things that need to change are how electricity is priced, how the fact that electricity is much more expensive than gas. Um, and then, yeah, just a whole economy needs to grow up around heat pumps. So, so that in 10 years, nobody would think of interviewing someone who had had a heat pump installed because it's just so common. That's, <laughs> that's, I don't want to be this unusual person here. Uh, it's quite yeah. uncomfortable to be that way, to be honest, because I don't see myself as a, an early adopter of technology. I mean, my personal laptop's about 10 years old. and my Actually, I did get a new phone recently, but that's because the old one broke. So, yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I can certainly speak up for um, for having your walls insulated because a few years ago um, we were faced with the situation where we would have to to have the walls of our house either re-rendered or um, have insulation put on and render put on top of the insulation. And it turned out that both both of those jobs cost about the same amount of money. So we went with the insulation and the difference that it's made um, in, in the house in the winter is, is incredible. Um, you know, we had very, um, very poorly insulated solid walls in our house. And, um, you know, we had condensation problems as, where, as well as cold spots. And um, the, the insulation has made a huge difference. You, you know, granted, you, you do have to take care of it. Um, mm. a bit more than, you know, a brick wall. Um, I'm sort of up there every at the end of every summer looking for places where water can get in, that mm. sort of thing. But, you know, that's the sort of general maintenance you do with a house. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's if, if you can, you know, if, if you're facing uh, uh, re-rendering your house, <laughs> I would definitely consider getting insulation put on um, because it'll make a, a huge difference. And, and Margaret, g- going back to um, to heating, uh, in the UK, um, a large number of houses are heated uh, by a natural gas boiler that's connected to an extensive mains distribution system. What about the idea of converting that entire system to run on hydrogen and then generating that hydrogen, I don't know, using solar energy or, you know, using green energy is that something that's possible or or do you think the move to electric heat pumps is uh is a wiser choice well i think that there is kind of a little bit of a situation which i i found from from speaking to people who work in both technologies there is a little bit of a question of oh you know heat pumps versus hydrogen i think it's a false dichotomy i think we probably need both there are some houses that aren't suitable for heat pumps uh, and there you might need to go to a district heating system where you have a, a, a municipal heat pump, a neighborhood heat pump that heats all the houses. 
Um, but you know, maybe hydrogen might be suitable for some as well. But the thing is that I think in both cases, there actually is quite a lot of retrofitting and change that needs to happen if we're going to go with burning 100% hydrogen. Yeah, so if you if you want to burn 100% hydrogen in your house, in your, in your boiler, you're going to need a lot of retrofitting. Um, changes to the pipework because uh, metal, metal pipework doesn't like having hydrogen run through it. It tends to crack the metal and cause, um, cause breakages, which is obviously not good. Um, but if you, if you blend in just a little bit of hydrogen, so there was a recent pilot study done on 20% hydrogen, uh, that seems to work okay. The question there is, okay, how do you get that 20% hydrogen? And, you know, you're right that it can be produced from uh, green sources. You can use solar energy or wind energy to uh, crack water, hydrolyze water into hydrogen and oxygen, and then burn the hydrogen. Um, that's absolutely possible. But at that point, actually, you, you get a situation where it's a bit comp more complicated than possibly it needs to be. You, you might know, as well just it, use that electricity to heat your house. You <laughs> might as well Probably just use the, the, the solar or the wind electricity to, to heat your house as it is. Um, I think the people I spoke to seem to think that in the longer term, um, hydrogen may have a, a whole a purpose in helping to decarbonize other areas of the economy. But, uh, you know, sort of uh, fertilizer, for example, or um, reformulation of, of, of hydrocarbons. So a lot of hydrogen production now goes into adding more, more hydrogen to those long chain hydrocarbons to, to produce different types of fuel. So um, that may in the longer term have more impact uh, than hydrogen would in, as domestic heating. But, you know, I'm not predicting the future. Uh, I think, you know, that it absolutely can be done. Um, the question is, is whether there's political will to do that as opposed to something else. Um, one other thing is that at the moment, hydrogen is actually a lot more expensive than natural gas. So um, from a money-saving perspective, burning hydrogen instead of natural gas is not going to fix the problem at all. And, and in your article, Margaret, you, you start off with a, a fascinating description of how the medieval church of Bath Abbey, which, you know, I have to say is a glorious church. Um, if you're ever in Bath, well, you can't miss it if you're in Bath, can you? Um, and, and you talk about how that church is, is heated and lit using renewable energy in a, a, a sort of a very interesting way. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, it's actually, it's heated by renewable energy, but it's not yet lit by renewable energy, but it could be, it could be, this is, this is the key thing. So, um, you know, I talked about, about heat pumps having possible sources of, of heat from the ground or from the air. Well, Bath Abbey, because it has this nice, uh, hot spring nearby, natural hot spring is actually heated effectively by a water source heat pump. Um, a very complex installation that uh, had to be installed in inside an ancient Roman drain uh, that was built, you know, 2,000 years ago to convey hot water from the natural hot springs into some, you know, municipal Roman bath or something. And so uh, they did some actually absolutely fascinating engineering work to tap into that that source uh, of heat, and that you now uses that to provide the, the abbey and a row of cottages next to it that is used as offices to provide it with all the heating it needs. And as for lighting, um, there was a feasibility study um, published earlier this year that looked into um, putting solar panels on the roof of Bath Abbey to allow it to, to generate some of its own electricity. And this, this study was done by students at the um, Bath 
located Center for Doctoral Training in Sustainable photo, uh, photo, Photovoltaics. And they found that the, the Abbey could generate roughly 35% of its power needs, its electricity needs, that is, uh, if it had solar panels on its roof. So they're not there yet. Um, no immediate plans to put them there. However, Gloucester Cathedral, just north of Bath, uh, it does have solar panels on its roof and it has had since 2016. And they, a spokesperson from um, Gloucester Cathedral said that they are working fine, doing great. They had a bit of a battle to get them up there in the first place. They had to do a lot of work to prove that they wouldn't be visible, wouldn't hurt the way the church looked. And again, the spokesperson said that they don't think the battle would have been quite as intensive now as it was then because, you know, the whole ideas about green energy have become a lot more salient, a lot more important, even in the past few months, I would say. Mm. Well, that's fascinating. And, and you can find Margaret's article on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Home Green Home, Scientific Solutions for Cutting Carbon and Maybe Saving Money. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Margaret. Sure thing, Hamish. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Marco Ulanen and Margaret Harris for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week. But in the meantime, do listen to the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester looks at what is being done to reduce the carbon impacts of big sporting events, such as the World Cup and the Commonwealth Games. You can find all the stories episodes on the Physics World website and also at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.